Jesus being God, against Arius. You know, and Arius uh, really created one of the biggest threats to the early church by denying the divinity of Christ, and it almost split Christianity in half. Council of Nicaea got it right, but then there was a lot of uh, politicking that happened within the Roman Empire that almost undid it. it. Took almost 60 years till we got to the Council of Constantinople, 381, and finally they hammered it down, and that's when we got the Nicene Creed, which makes it clear, biblically speaking, Jesus is God. But here's the conundrum, right? Once you have that figured out, it opens up a new can of worms, new questions that have to be asked and answered, okay? And so the creed, as I said, makes it clear that Jesus is divine, but the gospels also make it clear that Jesus is a man. He gets sleepy, he gets tired, he weeps, he has to sleep, he has to eat, all that kind of stuff. So given that there is an infinite distinction and separation between creator and creation, And yet we say Jesus is creator, but if he's a man, he's also creation. So how do these two work together? How could he be both at the same time? And so remember, Arius just said, up, he's not God. Well, he is God, right? And so as they're countering the Arian arguments with what we would call Nicene friendly arguments, um, all the answers aren't going to be the same. You're going to have some theologians answer the Arians one way, and others answer them the other way, and what these are going to reveal are distinct Christologies. And by the way, when I say Christology, what I mean is the doctrine of Christ. So theology, doctrine of God, Christology, doctrine of Christ. How do we, how do we describe Christ, the Messiah, the person, Jesus Christ? There's going to be distinct Christologies, and so which one's the right one that has to be figured out? And again, it's one thing to settle on the question of Christ being divine. But if you lack at the same time a definitive statement on how his divinity and humanity relate to each other, you're going to get these disagreeing Christologies. And so at the bottom here, I have the questions that needed to be hammered out. They needed to be asked and answered. For God to become a man, did he surrender his divine attributes of omnipresence and omnipotence? If so, he's not God, because God can't subtract from himself, okay? If God is, but then you have to say, well, then how could Jesus not know when he would return, right? So those questions come up. If God is impassable and does not suffer, hunger, or die, passable means that God doesn't undergo change as we do. Um, so if God is, impa- and he doesn't have uh, passions like we have, and when I say passion, I don't mean like our emotions. What I'm talking about is just the fact that we change and we go through these changes. We can suffer, we can hunger, we could die. Okay, so if God is impassable, if that's one of his attributes, yet Jesus is passable because he hungers and suffers and dies, then how could he still be God? Now, Scripture clearly affirms that Christ is God and Jesus is Christ. It also affirms that Jesus came in the flesh. So, how can Jesus be fully God and fully man and not be two separate people? And so, those are the questions that they really got to hammer out. And what we're going to end up with, just to give you the end at the beginning, we're going to end up with what's called the Council of Chalcedon. And we get the Chalcedonian Creed, which is probably the most robust statement of Christology ever written. It's very technical, very precise, very impressive from my standpoint. And you guys know me, I'm very critical of some aspects of the early church because I think they got too philosophical. But what they arrive at with the Council of Chalcedon has my thumbs up, both of them, you know. 
like I matter. But anyhow, so let, let me preface how we get to where we're going to get with the fact that there were two huge schools of Christian thought at this time. Um, you may have already started to suspect this based on things you've been seeing in the class so far, but you have the theologians of Antioch and you have the theologians of Alexandria, and they seem to be the two most influential groups of theologians in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. And they're different, okay? They're different. These are two schools of thoughts, right? So the theologians of Antioch, they represent the Antiochene school, and they focused on the literal historic meaning of Scripture. People like us like the Antiochian school because we also agree that, you know, what the authors of Scripture meant when they wrote it is what it means, okay? That's what it means, right? And so we would focus on the literal historical meaning of the scripture and then a present or timeless application. Now, the theologians of Alexandria, which you've probably been able to tell through guys like Origen and Clement and so forth, they, in their school, the Alexandrian school, they focused on a deeper allegorical meaning. That the most simple, most dumb person meaning is the plain meaning of the text. But since the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, there has to be a deeper allegorical meaning that only the most sophisticated theologians can understand. And again, we don't like that. <laughs> Not people who believe in expository preaching like we do. Now, there's going to be good things that come out of Alexandria. There's going to be good things that come out of Antioch. There's going to be bad that come out of both. And by the time we get to the end of this, what you get is a perfect blend between the two. Um, but because of these differences, it makes sense that these different approaches are going to yield different answers to these questions. Now, some of the leaders that the Antiochians produced during this time were Diodore of Tarsus, Theodore of uh, Mopsuestia, uh, Nestorius, who's going to be one of the, the heretics, although I'm not sure he was a heretic, but Nestorianism is a heresy. And you might say, okay, what are you talking about? We'll get there. Um, Ebas of Edessa and Theodoret of Cyrus. Those are some of the big names, the heavy hitters from, from Antioch at this time. Now, their literal view of Scripture, and, and this is where it's going to jump into the Christology debates, their literal view of Scripture made it impossible for them to minimize Christ's clear humanity. As they're expositing the Gospels, they're like, look, he was born, he grew, okay, he was a child, he grew, he had to eat, I mean, he died, he bled, um, so he was a man. We can't allegorize this. This is what the text says, you know, and it seems he was a complete human. And this is a, a key thing to understand. Like when we say he was a man, we just leave it there. Okay, but if they're saying he's a man, they're going to ask a question like how much of a man? Fully man? Partially man? Um, and you might say, how could somebody be partially man? Well, I'll, I'll get to that. Um, but for them to say he was fully man, they're like he has a body and a soul. And I guess I need to give a, a little side lecture, small one, quick rabbit trail. You have, and this is something I talk about in my Sysmac theology class that I taught a long time ago. You can find them all on Sermon Audio. When it comes to the nature of humanity, um, most Christians today believe in what's called dichotomy, that there's two aspects to being human, body and soul, okay? Whereas back during this time, there was a debate. Some people believed in trichotomy. What does tri mean? Three. So they thought humans comprised of three things, body, soul, and spirit. 
they separated spirit from soul. Very few people believe that today because it does create a lot of problems and it comes more from Plato than it does from the Bible. But I would say there was a good number of Christians back then that were trichotomists. And as others were moving towards a better understanding of dichotomy, that you have a material and immaterial part, and our immaterial part is composed of a lot of subparts, spirit, soul, mind, all that. But ultimately, we're two things, material and immaterial. So dichotomy works better. But when it came to the trichotomists, they're actually going to posit that Jesus had a human body in human spirit, but not a human soul. At that point, he's two-thirds of a man. You get what I'm saying? And so, so when we're saying, like when the Antiochenes are reading the scripture, you know, they're saying, what we see is a full man here. So you cannot deny any aspect of his humanity. Now, the Alexandrians, um, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I forgot I had another slide on the Antiochenes. So the Antiochenes, they emphasize the distinction between Christ's human and divine nature. So if it's clear from the Bible he's a man, right? But it's also clear that he's God, and we all accept the, the Nicene Creed, then what they're saying is we have to keep a wall that separates his divinity from his humanity. Otherwise, if you mix them, you end up with a new third substance, you know, where it's like part God, part man. No, if he's going to be fully God and fully man, we got to keep a, a, a chasm between these two. If we do not keep the two natures apart, then, uh, then pretty much the weaknesses the Gospels attribute to his human nature we're going to wrongly apply them to his divine nature. We're going to start to say that God himself can die, that divinity can die. So no, we, humanity could die. Humanity could be born, but not divinity. So we have to keep these separate. By definition, God can't be weak or limited. So we can't apply Christ's human limitations to divinity. And if you do, then you're proving the Arians right. If you could apply Christ's weaknesses to his deity, then he's less than God, which is what Arius said. So we, we can't go there. But at the same time, if you ascribe the divine powers to his humanity, then he's not a human anymore. He's a superhuman. How could he save us if he's not one of us, right? If he becomes something greater than, than regular humanity. So the only solution is we have to say he's fully God. We have to say he's fully man. And we have to keep these separated. Now, to avoid bringing the two together, they kept the two natures as far apart as possible to where some Antiochians go into the route of heresy, they split him into two persons. Okay, so you have Christ the man and Christ the God, and they're overlapping each other, but they're not the same person. It's two persons, but they're doing one work. It's, it's kind of weird. Not all Antiochians would say that, but some would, and it would be heretical, and that's going to give ammunition to their opponents. Um, so they become criticized for holding to two sons, a divine and a human. And as I said, some of them did think this way. Some of them pretty much uh, thought that it was just the divine filling and working through a regular human. That, that nothing special about Jesus, regular human, but the divine fills him, possesses him, and works through him in a perfect way. And if you follow that to its conclusion, then Jesus is nothing more than the ideal example of God dwelling and working through a man. But that's clearly not how the scripture presents Christ. He's presented as the God-man. So uh, the, Antiochene, the Antiochene school, though they're right for emphasizing his humanity and not wanting those attributes to be put on the divinity, their solution was unsatisfactory. 
Now, the other side, the Alexandrians, they're going to produce leaders like Athanasius, the, the hero of Nicene Orthodoxy, right? Um, and then Apollinarius, who was his friend, turned heretic. Did he miss the blind? I'm sure he had 20-20 vision. Uh, Cyril of Alexandria, who's going to be the probably heaviest hitting theologian of the debates we're talking about today. And then another heretic named Eutychus. Um, so some of these guys, amazing, like Athanasius, some of them, Heretics, just like with the Antiochenes, some amazing, some heretics. Now, this school, the Alexandrians, they're going to emphasize the divinity of Christ. And, and the reason they say, look, the Bible teaches that salvation is the work of God. Okay, it's the work of the Creator. So, the wor- so if salvation comes through Christ, yet salvation comes from God, then the words, actions, and experiences of Christ in the Gospels are not so much that of, of Christ, the human person, but of God himself. Okay? That, that is God himself. So some Alexandrians will push so far is to claim that the Logos, remember, the Logos is uh, the Word. Okay, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. They will say that the Logos was the supreme, sometimes even the only source of activity in Christ. So anything Christ did, it's the Logos doing it. It's the divine side. The human side doesn't even figure into it. Whereas the Antiochenes will separate the natures, the Alexandrians sometimes united them into a oneness always at the expense of the human nature, always in some way downplaying the humanity of Christ. And and some of them would argue that Christ's human nature was simply a tool by God taken up and used by the Logos or the Divine Son, and and the human nature of Christ really had little agency, activity, no power of its own. It was just the puppet of, of the Logos, of the divine. Okay? And so in their insistence on his divine nature, they accepted a less than fully human nature. Usually, the way it would happen is by denying a human soul or mind. By the way, soul and mind were the same in their thoughts back then. Um, so, so they would deny that he has a human soul or mind. And listen, even Athanasius, we're not clear what he believed on this. Even though he gives, helps us really articulate the Trinity, um, he never really gave us clear what he thought on the relationship between Christ's humanity and his divinity. Now, the Alexandrian fear was that if you place too much emphasis on a human soul or mind, then you split Christ into two persons, which is what some Antiochians did. So like if you focus too much on his humanity, you end up with two persons, two sons. And so you end up at heresy. You couldn't say that Jesus is the son. You just have to say Jesus, the man, relates to the son. And at that point, we lose what the scripture says. And so I could see the points both sides make. I could see why this is going to get heated and contested. So let me talk about the the first heretic. This is going to happen right after... Nicaea, well, after the Council of Constantinople, but that's when Nicene Christianity wins the empire, right? Um, Apollinarius, he was a friend of Athanasius. Athanasius loved him because he was a strong anti-Arian. He fought against Arius well. Well, once he starts debating Arians about the relationship of Jesus' divinity to his humanity, the answer he gives diminishes Christ's humanity, okay? And Eventually, his answers are so public that even his allies are going to be like, 
Apollinarius, that doesn't sound right. Okay, and so here's, here's what he's going to say. He's going to openly teach that Jesus had a human body and spirit, but not a human soul. The two-thirds of a man, right? He's, he's two-thirds of a man. Um, now, in Alexandrian theology, the human mind or soul was the source of all human weakness and sin. And so if all human weakness and sin comes from our soul or our mind, well, Christ was sinless, that means he can't have a soul or mind. Now, there's a flaw with this, right? The flaw is the Bible never limits our mind as the source of our sin. The whole package is sinful. Body, soul, it, it, we're all jacked up everywhere, you know? And so pretty much you can't just, so since our body's jacked up with sin, you know, uh, by their logic, Jesus couldn't have had a body, right? So Apollinarius's logic doesn't work. So, but here's what he did. They're like, all right, well, hold on. You die if you don't have a soul. And so what he would say is the Logos was the soul, right? So the second person of the Trinity, that divine, took the place of the soul in regular people. So we all have our own soul. Jesus didn't have his own human soul. Just the Logos was the soul. And that's how the two unite together. Um, and he was also convinced that if Christ were fully human, if he had a soul, then it would split him into two separate persons, which again, it doesn't logically follow, but some of these Alexandrians thought it would, and Apollinarius was one of them. Now, last time I talked to you about Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the three Cappadocian fathers. Brilliant, helped finally win the day for Trinitarian theology. He also had to put Apollinarius in his place. And so, and I had to read uh, Gregory's theological orations, and I had to read his essays against Apollinarius. And Dude was brilliant, you know. When we think of these people back then, oh, they lived back then, they must have been dumb. This guy's intellect would run circles around most PhDs today. I mean, and you think about it, they didn't have computer programs where they could just look stuff up. They didn't have libraries that they go, go to like ours. This guy was writing what he wrote off memory, quoting Greek and, and Roman poets and philosophers, the scriptures, just off the top of his head, left and right, just... Brilliant. But anyhow, okay. so his argument is one of the best arguments ever made. He said real simple to Apollinarius that Christ cannot save what he does not assume. And you might say, what in the world does that mean? Okay. He cannot save what he cannot assume. He can't save humanity if he does not assume humanity. He has to become humanity to save humanity. Any part of humanity he doesn't become, he then doesn't redeem. And so if he does not also have a human soul, then he cannot redeem human souls. What good would it do for him to redeem our body and our spirit? Apollinarius was a trichotomist. What good would it do for Christ to redeem those, but not our soul? If our soul is still fallen and sinful, we're still in trouble. We're still going to hell, right? And so Gregory, is make, he makes it clear, Christ's human nature requires both. It requires both. And so he has to be the savior of a full humanity. Therefore, he must be fully man. Now, one positive result of Gregory's arguments was they were so persuasive that the rest of the Alexandrians, for the most part, abandoned Apollinarianism and said, okay, that cannot be the solution. And so you're not really going to have to worry about Apollinarius um, too much after this. There's going to be other heretics that you have to worry about. Now, from the other side, so we fast forward quite a few decades, 
okay, not too far, but quite a few, you end up with Nestorius from the Antiochian side. And he's going to bring, uh, what he's going to propose is going to be problematic. And it's what's going to set everything off, the chain of events that leads us to the council of, uh, of Chalcedon. But just a little bit about Nestorius. He was the bishop of Constantinople. That's one of the five patriarchs, one of the top dogs of, of the early church. Very authoritative, uh, excellent preacher. Um, and everybody assumed he was orthodox. Okay, they assumed he was orthodox. Um, but where the problem is going to come with Nestorius is, um, well, let me not get ahead of myself. The Antiochian school that I was telling you about, they reacted fiercely against Apollinarianism. If anything smells like Apollinarianism, they're, they're already ready to just go full World War you know, 10 on them. And so they insisted on the completeness of Christ's human nature. Anything short of that, they're like, nope, it's heresy. Okay? But they also said, but we have to keep it separate from the divine nature, as I've been saying. Well, what's going to happen is there's going to be this dispute that comes up that's going to test this. Okay? And his teacher, Theodore of Mapasuestia, um, is going to be the leading Antiochian thinker of this time. And he's going to take on a popular statement. A lot of people in the Roman Empire were calling Mary, mother of Jesus, calling her Theotokos, okay? Or Theotokos. Theotokos means God-bearer, or Catholics say mother of God. It doesn't literally mean mother of God, um, but if, he's the, if she's the bearer of God, then she's the mother of God, right? And so Theodore's like, that ain't right, Okay. She bore the humanity of Jesus, not the divinity. Because remember, they keep it separate. And he's thinking God can't be born, okay? But a human could be born. So it's not God that's in the womb. It's humanity that's in the womb. So Theotokos is completely inappropriate. It's popular paganism that's making its way into the, the uh, Christian church at this time. Whereas the Alexandrians were like, no. No, no, Jesus is God, okay? Jesus is God, and if Jesus was the one born in the womb of Mary, conceived in the womb of Mary and born from Mary, then she is the Theotokos, the God-bearer. To, to say anything less is to say that what was in her womb was less than God, okay? But if Jesus is God, then, then that can't be the case. And so the Alexandrians are like, Theodore, you're going too far. Don't push back on Theotokos. And Theodore's like, oh, I'm pushing. And so this is, this is what's happening then. And so Nestorius becomes one of the patriarchs of Constantinople, of all places, and he's going to take up Theodore's charge. He's going to be like, yep, Theotokos is a no-go. Nobody should be saying that. Well, as soon as he takes up that charge, he makes an enemy out of Alexandria's foremost premier theologian, a man named Cyril. And so uh, I'll talk about Cyril in a little bit, but first let me tell you Nestorius's argument. He argued that it's pagan to claim that passable things like birth and death can be applied to divinity. And he said, and if you don't like me saying it's pagan, then fine, it's Arian. And of course, that people are like, all right, you're, you're low blow, low blow Nestorius, right? He further argued that what was incarnated in the womb by God was not God itself, and what was buried in the tomb was not God itself, but only humanity. And so his solution is what we would call a diophysite Christ. 
gotta love these theological terms, right? Diophysite, die to. Physite uh, comes from the Greek word thusis, which means nature. So a two nature Christ. Okay? He believed that you can attribute some of Jesus' acts to his human nature and other acts to his divine nature. So they would, an historian would commonly say, in Christ's humanity, he does X, Y, and Z. And in Christ's divinity, he does A, B, and C, right? Um, and so that's, that's how they would split it apart. And of course, the Alexandrians would, would have none of that. Now, Cyril, his great opponent, and by the way, probably one of the most brilliant theologians in all of history. Um, people are still doing PhDs on what this guy writes. It's that compelling. I think he's a piece of dookie of a man. I'm just going to tell you that. As a human, as a human being, piece of dookie. As a theologian, brilliant. Um, so anyhow, you'll see what I mean in a minute. So Cyril was uh, one of Nestorius. He was Nestorius' chief opponent. Uh, he was the patriarch of Alexandria, which was another one of the five major cities of uh, Christianity back then. He accused Nestorius of being a heretic. You are spreading false teaching about Christ. Now, as I said, he's brilliant. But his problem is he makes doctrinal debates into personal quarrels. If he disagrees with you, it's not enough for him to beat you in a debate. He hates you as a person and puts all of his energy and influence into destroying you. Destroying you, using the government to destroy you, tarnishing your reputation, bribing people to abandon you. That's how low this guy goes to win. And the crazy thing is he didn't need to because nobody could beat this guy in open debate during this time. Yet he still was this dirty. And I think it was just because he it's just that that spiteful, angry, hateful heart that some people have, which is unbecoming of a Christian leader. Um, but... It is what it is, right? I, I think there, there's a reason why in the whole history of Israel up to the time of Messiah, there's no perfect people. They're all flawed except Jesus. He's the only one. And then after Jesus and his church, all the great people we have in history that have given us so many great things, they're all jacked up. We all have warts. We all have black eyes. We have our blemishes. There's only one who does it, and that's Jesus. Okay, so... That's why these guys got to be jerks like this. That's, you know, even Martin Luther, he gives us the Protestant Reformation, but man, that guy cussed like a sailor. Um, there's a reason why his opponents called him a drunk friar, uh, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So all these guys, all these guys were flawed. Um, but anyhow, Cyril, getting back to, to Cyril, he possessed a hatred of Antiochian theology in general. Um, so he inspired partisanship, tribalism. It's us versus them. Rather than having a united church, it was united in name, but, but not in practice. And, um, and he was one of those guys where the people in his camp were loyal. Loyal, loyal, loyal. They loved him even after he was dead. They would loyal, be loyal to his theology to a fault. Those who were on the other side hated him. In fact, when he died, one of his opponents wrote a letter to one of that guy's friends saying, man, I'm so glad this guy's dead, but he's so odious. Once he gets to heaven, they might send him back. You know, let's pray he doesn't get sent back. You know, so that's how much his opponents uh, hated him. So yeah, they, they had their own version of Twitter back then. It was called writing letters that took forever to get places. But yeah, they, they talked their, their mad amount of garbage back then. Um, so, remember, he, he opposes Antiochian theology, 
And that means he opposes whoever is the patriarch of Constantinople, because usually that falls under the school of, uh, of Antioch and uh, his uncle. So I haven't taught you about John Chrysostom yet. That'll be next time. He's one of the greatest preachers of the early church. He became the patriarch of Constantinople, and Cyril's uncle had the same type of personality and destroyed him as a man and got him deposed. So one of the greatest preachers in history kind of ends his career in shame because of what his Alexandrian opponent did. Cyril said, what my uncle did was right, and I'm going to do the same thing. That's what my life is, is dedicated to. And one reason is these guys were jealous of Antioch. They're like, why does Antioch have greater influence over the Eastern Church than Alexandria? Alexandria should be the, the primary one. So it's petty, right? This is, this is a very petty thing. I want, more, I want to have more influence. Our city should have more influence. We were right about the Trinity. The Antiochenes were the ones who gave Arius a chance, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, he, he had... He had a bad attitude about this. So when Nestorius, the patriarch of Constantinople, pushes this two natures of Christ um, thing, then Cyril's like, all right, I'm going to bury him like my uncle buried John Chrysostom. You know, and, and, and that's, that's what his goal was. Now, he argued from the actual words of the Nicene Creed. He was smart. This is the law in the Roman Empire. So if you're going to argue from this, this is the way to go. And he's like, look, Nicene Creed, the words say that Jesus is the only begotten son and that the only begotten son himself came down, was incarnate, made man, and suffered. So it's the only begotten, meaning the divine logos, the eternal son that was incarnate, made man, and suffered. So to say that what was in the womb of Mary was any less then the eternal Son of God is to deny the Nicene Creed. And if you're denying the Nicene Creed, well, you're a heretic. You have no place in the, in the empire. You know, and so, uh, yeah. And he said the incarnation renders a unity in Christ, not a division. A unity in the humanity and the divinity. And as such, the Logos was born to Mary and it was the Logos that did die on the cross. Yes, the, that God was born and God was in a tomb. We can't, if we say anything less, we're denying what the person of Jesus Christ is. And so what he said is that Nestorius and his ilk get it wrong because they don't understand the subject of the incarnation. They, they, they see the incarnation as, as something separate from the eternal son, but no, the logos, the son, is the subject of the incarnation. There's not two subjects, divinity and humanity. One subject, divinity, right? And then that divinity adds humanity to himself, right? That's the incarnation. But who is it that adds the humanity to himself? The son, right? The divine son. So it's not that the son performs divine actions and the man performs human actions. No, the one subject, the logos, performs both actions as God and as man. Technically, he's right, but the language he uses opens the door for different heresies. And so that's the problem. It, it's not precise. And that's uh, this, the second part of this slide is that the language, language is not precise because it sounds like a denial that Christ had two distinct natures. Let me just throw a little caveat out there. When I was studying this, you know, in, in a PhD seminar, I would read both sides. And as I'm reading them, on one hand, I'm like, 
man, they both sound right to me. Okay, am I a heretic? <laughs> you know? Um, but then when you hear the other side saying what's wrong with the other side, you're like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But then the other side counters their thing, and it's like, ah. Oh. And, and I think the problem was, and what became kind of obvious a little later, was it was the imprecise usage of language, especially when they would, both sides would use the same word with different meanings. And that's why they weren't understanding each other. And we saw the same thing with the Trinitarian debate when it came to hypostasis and usia. And so at the end, they finally said, all right, we're all going to agree usia means this, hypostasis means this. And once they agreed on that, oh, the Trinity, of course, (laughs) makes sense. And so something's going to have to happen here with language as well. And so to kind of explain what I mean by this is uh, it has to do with the word nature, okay? It has to do with the word nature because it sounds like Cyril is denying Christ had two natures, okay? And he even says, Nestorius, I'm writing you a letter. You have to accept the Alexandrian claim that there is only one incarnate nature in the Logos. Otherwise, we are declaring you a heretic. And Nestorius said, I will not agree to that. It is clear he has a human nature. It's clear he has a divine nature. You're saying he only has one, which means you're denying his humanity. And Cyril's like, we're not denying his humanity, but he has one nature. And Nestorius would be like, no, he has two. And again, this is where the language comes in, okay? Cyril uses the word phusis, for nature, for nature, and that's what it means. Um, but he was, so when he says Christ has one incarnate, uh, the Logos has one incarnate nature as the Logos, he's not denying Christ has a human and divine nature. But since he's using the word phusis and saying he only has one, that's what it sounds like to the, to the people on Nestorius' side. Okay. Now, where the confusion comes from is after the Cappadocian fathers convinced everybody to agree that hypostasis refers to the three persons, usia refers to the one substance of God, right? Well, both the Alexandrian and the Antiochians would use hypostasis and phusis as synonyms. Now, I want you to think about that. Hypostasis means person. Phusis means nature. That means they were using person and nature as synonyms, even though they don't mean the same thing. And that is where this is going to get all funny on these guys, and they're going to be talking past each other. Okay, Um, and and so they're not the same. They're being used as the same. So when Cyril says Christ has one phusis, he actually meant one person. Christ is one person. And when Nestorius says that, uh, by the way, when he says Christ is one phusis, he meant Jesus of Nazareth was not a different person from the Logos. And Nestorius probably would have agreed with that, right? That, yeah, Christ and the Logos and Jesus, the man, aren't a different person. One person man, God. Okay. Um, But again, they were talking past each other. When Nestorius says Christ is two Fuses or uh, Fuses, um, Cyril thought he was arguing for two persons. Because remember, he's using Fuses as person. Nestorius is using it as nature. No, no, he's two natures. Okay. And so this is where the problem came from. Now, Nestorius, though, because of his position, he denied that Mary was Theotokos. And if he will not say Mary is Theotokos, the God-bearer, then Cyril's saying, well, no, you are splitting Christ in two persons then. This, this is the line that we, we can't agree on. I must be right about you. Otherwise, you would say that, that Mary is Theotokos. And so that's kind of where, where the confusion happens. 
And by the way, if this all sounds very technical to you, it doesn't to me because I've been studying it forever. But when I first came across this stuff, it's like Mufasa, Mufasa. You know, it's just it's so and, and it really makes you realize that, man, 18 or 1600 years ago, you know, 1500 years ago, these people weren't dumb. You know, they, they were they were very deep and they were really asking and thinking about questions that most Christians today don't think about because they're so shallow. Um, but these were not shallow thinkers back then. So this is all going to come to a head in the Council of Ephesus, 431. Um, and, and, and what happens here is, is Cyril convinces the Patriarch of Rome, a.k.a. the Pope, uh, but he's not the Pope yet. We'll get there eventually. But this, the Patriarch of Rome, Celestine, um, and the Emperor, who is Theodosius II, he convinces them to summon the next ecumenical council. Nicaea was the first, Constantinople was the second, Ephesus shall be the third. Okay, And Cyril, being the very integrity-filled man that he was, and I say that sarcastically, he opens up the council before Nestorius and his Antiochene bishops could get there. And once they open the council, all votes count. And so when all his people are there, they quickly have a vote to declare Nestorius as a heretic and uh, to depose him as the patriarch of Constantinople. And it's some bishops that were like, eh, you know, this kind of seems dirty. Maybe we shouldn't do it this way. Um, the rumor is he bribed them. You know, well, you know, how much will it take to get you to vote with the party? Uh, you know, how many ever drachma and then you know, it happened. So starting the council before Nestorius's allies arrived, that rigged the result. So what happens is Nestorius's followers show up and they're like, oh, you, you know, your guy's a heretic. We've already had the vote. He's out. And so what happens, they're like, forget you guys. They in the same city start their own council and say only ours counts. And then they vote to excommunicate or banish Cyril. Okay, and they're following a man named John of Antioch. He's the, the bishop or patriarch of Antioch, right? And so they voted to, dis, to depose Cyril of his position. So the Alexandrians depose Nestorius, then the Antiochians depose Cyril. What's going to happen? Who's going to arbitrate this? Well, in comes the emperor, Theodosius II. He intervenes and he takes Cyril's side because he agreed with his theology. So Cyril gets reinstated. Um, and the Council of Ephesus is considered still uh, one of the three ecumenical councils, even though it was dirty. And Nestorius was declared as a heretic, and he was exiled. So Nestorius is gone. He lost. Cyril's politicking worked. Okay? Now, one reason why this council still is a good one, despite all this bad stuff, is they condemned another heresy called Pelagianism that I'll be talking about next time. And, and that was one where Augustine was arguing against a heresy coming out of England or Britannia. And Pelagianism is a pretty bad heresy. It keeps finding its way back, um, you know, and, and we do deal with the form of it today. Uh, so I'll talk about that next time. So a good result did come out of the council, but this council did not solve anything, obviously, in terms of the Christological debates. Um, they're, they're still happening at this, at this point because, you know, the whole other side's not going to be happy with how this went down. Many bishops thought that Cyril and Theodosius II did Nestorius wrong, and so the emperor's like, look, I can't, I can't have a divided empire over this. We need peace. And so let's work out a compromise statement between Cyril and John of Antioch, the 
patriarch of, Const- uh, of Antioch, and the one of Alexandria. And so this compromise was called the Formula of Union of 433. And it's, it's pretty good in terms of compromises. So John and the Antiochenes would accept Notorious' banishment. He's out, fine, we'll agree he's a heretic. No more Nestorius, okay? And we will accept the term Theotokos. We accept your, your um, demands. But, Cyril, you would have to accept a statement of faith with our Antiochian language that Christ is one person with two natures. And so they're going to be like, we are using hypostasis and phusase different. Okay? He is one hypostasis, two phusase, right? Two natures. And, and this is henceforth becomes called the hypostatic union. This is the technical term that all Christians accept today. To deny it makes you a heretic. Okay? The hypostatic union is that, in the, that Jesus Christ is one person, and in that one person subsists two natures, divine and human, obviously with the divine being primary. Okay, he was always divine, but he added humanity. But the moment he added humanity in the incarnation, he is forever a human now, but he's still forever God. And you don't have the mixing where he becomes demigod. No, 100% God, 100% man, separate, but they subsist in the one person. Okay, now there's going to be some implications that come from that. But this hypostatic union, this is the doctrinal precision that we've been trying to get to, you know, as a church at, you know, um, up to this point, right? Now, Cyril hears this and he's like, well, technically, this is what I believed all along. He's like, okay, and this is why we know the fact that he was able to accept this is why we know he was confused. He was using phusis and hypostasis the same. But once he hears it put out this way, he's like, no, I agree with that. Okay, I, I, I can sign on to this. But here's the problem. In all of his rhetoric against this before this point, when he signs on to this, a lot of his followers think he sold out. They think he sold out. They're like, no, it's one phusis, not two. And so they felt betrayed. And they hated the language of two natures. And so, but as long as Cyril was alive, they weren't going to cross him. And as long as John of Antioch was alive, his side wasn't going to cross him. So you had a peace. Once they die, John in 441 and Cyril in 444, the controversy re-erupts because a new heretic shows up onto the scene with a new heresy, Eutychus, not to be confused with the guy who fell out of the window when Paul was preaching, different Eutychus. Um, But Eutychus is going to, he comes out of Constantinople and he's going to take an extreme form of Alexandrianism. He's going to argue that Christ's humanity was completely swallowed up by his divinity. That, that he is only God. Okay? That, that how could humanity contain divinity? No, the, 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 the divinity completely swallowed up the humanity. So the incarnate son only has one nature, divine. It makes no sense to talk about him as a regular human in any regular sense. Okay? Now, the new patriarch of Alexandria was a man named Dioscorus, and he supported Eutychus. And he had a personality like Cyril. He was, he was, in, he was worse, and he lacked the theology. So, so Cyril, if he was alive, would have put this guy in his place. 
But with Cyril dead, and you have a non-careful thinker now in his place as patriarch of Alexandria, and a guy who's a thug, he acts more like a gangster than a theologian, then um, this is going to lead to some problems. Now, the patriarch of Constantinople was a man named Flavian. And he hears Eutychus. He's like, you're denying the humanity of Christ. You're denying the, the, the union that John and Cyril agreed upon, that Theodosius agreed, that, you know, uh, forced them to, to agree upon. So Eutychus is a heretic. Now, Eutychus's opponents accused him of promoting a mutant Christ. They're like, you're presenting even a third thing nobody's ever heard of. And they called it tertium quid. Like, what's this third thing, this, this divinity that swallows up humanity? Get out of here with your heresy, right? And a little later, the Council of Chalcedon, 451, will condemn Eutychus's uh, teaching as, as heresy. So it, it, will, it will be condemned. But again, the emperor wants things to be um, solved. And so what's going to happen is that uh, Dioscorus, again, he hates Antiochian theology. He hates Constantinople, just like Cyril did. He doesn't have the theological depth. I've already said that. He's a thug. So Theodosius II, the emperor, he summons another council. He's like, all right, we need a council of Ephesus part two. And so this is in 449 that the emperor summons this council. And sadly, what happens is Dioscorus is going to use violence and tactics to silence the opposition. When the opposition shows up, he has his guys just beat the snot out of them, threaten to kill them, all sorts of stuff. And so they're now beaten into silence. And, and then the people who were allowed to vote, who weren't beaten, were, they voted for Eutychus to be reinstated. And then they outlawed the formula of union. So the hypostatic union, they now declared illegal, even though before it was declared legal. And then what they did is they deposed the patriarch Flavian from Antioch, along with the famous Bible commentator Theodoret of Cyrus. He wrote some commentaries on the Bible that people still read today. Also, Ebas of Edessa, he was the one who mediated uh, between the the debates between uh, Nestorius and Cyril. These, for the most part, were good guys. They're deposed, and Flavian was beaten to death at this council. That's how much he, he hated uh, the, the patriarch of, of Antioch. And also there's another little angle to throw into this. Okay, the bishop of Rome at this time was Leo I. This guy is probably, well, I'm not going to say that for sure, but some consider him the first pope um, because he's going to... Different war, a lot later, though, a lot later. But Leo, in this case, so here's the thing. Some say Leo's the first pope. Some say Gregory is the first pope. I tend to lean more towards Gregory because of what we think of, of the papacy today. It has to have three parts. Leo had a couple of the parts, but he didn't have the third part. But he's going to make an argument that will later become the basis of the papacy. But, but anyhow... Um, where Leo fits into this, right, is that the East requested 
that at this council, the Bishop of Rome would attend and even preside over it because, you know, they're way off in Rome. He's impartial. And Rome, come on, I mean, that's where Peter and Paul died, important city. And so we want the Bishop of Rome to come and preside over this. Leo couldn't come because Attila the Hun was invading Italy at this time. And so he's like, I can't come. We're being invaded by Attila the stinking Hun. He didn't say stinking, but he's like, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I will send a letter, which is called Leo's Tome, which announces our position, which we think is the biblical position on the nature of Christ, how divine and humanity, how they form together. And Leo's Tome is amazing. If you read it, every word is truth in it. Every word. He nails it down perfectly. You got the one person, the two natures, divine and human. It's exactly what uh, John of Antioch and Cyril agreed on. But I would say it's argued even better. Well, so this tome, if they would have just read it and say, you know what, that makes sense. This controversy would have been done. But instead, Dioscorsus rejects it, won't even let it be considered. Um, And so that's going to, that's going to, extend the problem. Now, before I get back to that, let me just quickly say a little bit about Leo I. Um, He was probably the greatest theologian to be Bishop of Rome up to this point. Um, And as I said, some argue he is the founder of the papacy. And the reason why people will argue this is he advanced the argument of what's called Petrine theory. You've probably heard this before. Petrine theory is the argument that Catholics make to this day that Jesus made Peter the head of the church, okay, that in Matthew 16, he says, you're the rock on this rock, you know, I'll build this church and what you, I give you the keys of the kingdom and what you loose will be loosed, what you uh, bind will be bound. So like that was given to Peter. And then they argue that Peter went to Rome because that's where Peter died, was in Rome. And they say Peter was the first bishop of Rome. It's not true. History shows us the first bishop of Rome was Linus, but they argue that it was Peter. And so they say, if Peter was the bishop of Rome, then whoever he ordained took his spot, and then who that guy ordained took that spot. And so Peter passed on those keys to the person he ordained, which would be the bishop of Rome. And so henceforth, um, all the bishops of Rome are actually in a class above all the rest. They're the final court of appeal, just like all the apostles were apostles, but Peter was chief of them. And so just like all the major bishops are bishops, but the bishop of Rome is the chief among them. Now, the other bishops didn't all buy this. Some did. Some said, you know what? I think that's right. Others would be like, no, that's not, you know. Um, And and then you have um, even going back to Cyprian, uh, when I was talking about him centuries before this, even, even he agreed with this, but he said, you still don't have a right to tell another church what to do. And so this argument goes back to the 200s, at least. But now you have a bishop of Rome in the 400s making a forceful argument of it. And he will tell the East that, listen, I'm supreme over you guys. And, and really, at first, they're going to be like, no, you're not, but uh, we need you, you know. And so you're, you're going to have um, some of this going on. But the way he makes his argument and the way he's actually going to win in this whole thing paves the way, I think, for later bishops of Rome to finally make the argument and seal the deal and make themselves um, number one. But, uh, but yeah, so just wanted to, to share that. And then moving on back to this, uh, this Council of Ephesus, right, of uh, the Second Council of Ephesus, the Alexandrian victory at this council, as I said, led to the death of Flavian. He was beaten to death, dies from his injuries, and then they appoint a puppet as the patriarch of Constantinople. And, uh, and he was an Alexandrian that believed what 
Dioscorus believed. Oh, that doesn't surprise anybody. And he has the same mentality of him. So Leo, all the way back in Rome, said that is not an ecumenical council. I call it the robber synod um, or the robber's council because you robbed it. You know, you stole it. It's not. And to this day, it's not counted as an ecumenical council. In fact, the church almost universally recognizes it as the robber's synod. Um, so it, it's seen for what it was. Now, Theodosius II, though, he's like, I don't care what Leo calls it. I'm the emperor. I just want this thing buried. I'm taking the side of Dioscorus, and I'm going to use the sword of the government to force you all to get in line. And so it looked like Dioscorus was going to get away with it. But then in 450, Theodosius dies in a riding accident. He's just riding his horse, and then the horse kills him, and he's dead. And so the new emperor, Marcian, not to be confused with the heretic of many centuries earlier, but the new emperor, Marcian, sided with the Romans. He's like, I think Leo's right. I think these Antiochians are right. I think Dioscorus is a problem. So he's like, we're going to fix this once and for all. So the next year, 451, he summons a new council to do what the last one failed to do, and it's called the Council of Chalcedon because it was held in Chalcedon, which was close to Constantinople. Over 400 bishops showed up, most from the east, but Pope Leo did send some ambassadors with his tome saying, hey, read it this time. You know, this will help solve the problem. And I would like to say it still went smooth. It didn't. There were some, some roughness they had to get over. And so here's, here's, here's what it comes down to. Most of the bishops were loyal to Cyril. And, but they also opposed Eutychus, and they opposed Dioscorus. They're like, you know what? He is no Cyril. The stuff he's teaching, Cyril would not have been happy with. So like, we want to go back to what Cyril believed. And Cyril, he agreed with the hypostatic union. So we, we want to accept it, but we want to use Cyril's language. The problem was Cyril's language could be co-opted by the heretics, meaning we know what Cyril meant, and he meant something right, but the language was not precise. So somebody like Eutychus could say, I believe that. We're like, yeah, but we know you don't. We know you really don't. And so the other side said, listen, we need language different than his. That means what he means, but in such a way that these heretics can't use it. And the followers of Cyril were like, nope. Again, they're fiercely loyal to him. So then pretty much Pope Leo says, listen, come up with a newer we're going to refuse to recognize the proceeding. The whole Western church will refuse to recognize it. And keep in mind, the emperor was agreeing with the pope at this time. And so if Leo doesn't back this, it's not going to happen. And this, this I would say this council being the most, one of the most successful councils ever, precisely because he gives this ultimatum, is going to be one thing that makes his claim later appear to be true, that the bishop of Rome is the supreme out of all of them. But anyhow... A compromise gets reached where they agree that Christ is incarnate in two natures rather than from two natures. Cyril said from, and they're saying we have to say in. Because if you say from, Eutychus could say, oh, I believe that. And then in the small print, and then I believe the divine has, you know, swallowed up the human. Whereas if you say in, no, that means he's incarnate in. Both natures. Both natures are now united. Um, you know, they both subsist in the, in the one person. And so 
The new formula got acceptance from both sides. It satisfied Leo, the emperor, most of the Eastern bishops, um, it, even the patriarch of, of Constantinople, the one that Dioscorus put in power. He turns his back on Dioscorus and says, yeah, I vote for this too. Um, and so pretty much everybody that mattered now voted for this. It pleased all parties except some Alexandrians and some Syrians. And so the end result was the Chalcedonian Creed of 451. And it really was a perfect blend of Alexandrian and Antiochian Christologies. Uh, It also used very specific language to condemn the three heretical Christologies we talked about, Apollinarius, Nestorius, and Eutychus. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the Creed to you. I know that rhymed. I'm going to read the creed and I'm going to point out to you um, where it blends the Alexandrian and the, the Antiochian and where it refutes these, these heretics. Okay, so um, I'll tell you what concerns the Alexandrians and what concerns the people of Antioch and I'll tell you where the heretics are wrong. So here's what it says. It says, we all with one voice confess our Lord Jesus Christ one and the same Son, okay, that's for the Alexandrians, at once completely in deity and complete in humanity, that's for the Antiochians, truly God, Alexandrians, and truly man, Antiochians, consisting of a rational soul and body, okay, Antiochians, of the same essence as the Father and His deity, of the same essence as us and as humanity, Antiochians there, like us in all things apart from sin. And by the way, all that refuted Apollinarius, who said Jesus only is two-thirds of a human, okay? Um, And then it continues. It says that he's uh, like us in all things apart from sin, begotten from the Father before all ages, as regards his deity, the same born of the Virgin Mary, the birth giver of God. Alexandrians, that's Theotokos right there. As regards to his humanity in the last days for us and our salvation, one in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, it's Alexandrian, and to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, Alexandrians, I mean uh, Antiochians, that's what they wanted. And then the next one, without division, without separation, that's what the Alexandrians want. The next one's what the Antiochians want. The distinction of the natures being in no way abolished because of the union, but rather the characteristic property of each nature being preserved. By the way, that all refutes Eutychus. Um, all of that says, yeah, he's crazy, that he has, Christ has both natures. They're still distinct. They don't bleed into each other. But Christ is still Theotokos, right? And then it says, and coming together to form one person and one hypostasis. He is not split or divided into two persons, but he is one in the same Son and only begotten God, the Logos, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's for the Alexandrians. That is anti-Nestorius. Okay? He's not two persons, he's one. And it says, as formerly the prophets and, uh, and later Jesus Christ himself have taught us about him and it has been handed down to us by the creed of the fathers. Um, and so 
it was very well put. They refute all three major heretics. They bring together both sides' concerns and show that they're not contradictory to each other. They all want the same thing. They just needed more precise language. And I think to this day, we still don't have language that is as... We can't come up with more precise language than that. But here's the problem, okay? Solves the problem for all Orthodox folks. But some Alexandrians, some Syrians reject the brilliant Christological statement, those who wanted to deny either part or all of Christ's humanity are going to be condemned as monophysites. So there's going to be some who say, no, we still don't like this idea of two natures. We want to downplay his humanity. They were committed to Cyril's language of one nature. Um, even though Cyril changed and said, no, one person, two natures, they're like, nope, nope, one nature. And so they were just dead set. Uh, they were dead set. We're only going to focus on his divine nature. Um, although, look, they didn't deny his human nature. They just didn't say it was right to say he had two natures. They said he had one nature and he, that one nature uh, added humanity to itself. Um, but the rest of the church calls them monophysites, one nature rights, and they condemn them. And the state then takes it upon itself to enforce this decision with the sword. And when the state does that, this is going to cause the first schism in the church. And what I mean by that is this leads to independent national churches. How many of you have heard of Egyptian Coptic? How many of you have heard of Syrian Orthodox? How many of you have heard of um, the Armenian and Ethiopian churches? There used to just be the church. Okay, but on the eastern half, eventually these guys say, okay, they were all sympathetic to the monophysite position. We just don't like the use of the word two natures. They, they were still hung up on that. And because of that, they wouldn't bend. So when the government said, we're going to make you bend, they said, no, we're not. And, and honestly, we want to keep our own culture. You've been pushing Greek on us for hundreds of years. We Ethiopians speak Ethiopian, we Egyptians speak Coptic, we Syrians speak Syriac. And so we're going to have our own church traditions with our own languages, and we're not going to accept the Chalcedonian creed. Um, and, and so pretty much they saw themselves as rebels against Greek imperialism, and, um, and they all saw themselves as having apostolic succession. They could all say, look, we have bishops that go back to the apostles too, and so we don't need um, the, the, um, the universal church. And so that's what happens with all these. Now, the Nestorians didn't all disappear. Okay, those who said, no, we believe that Jesus is two persons, divine and human. They're just going to move into the Parthian Empire. They're going to move into the Persian Empire and eventually set up base there. And in fact, in 486, it'll be recognized as the official Christianity of Persia. It's a heretical Christianity, but that's what Persia accepted. And they evangelized as far as China's capital and still had churches there in the 8th century. So the Nestorians did have a good run, but you're not going to find them too much. And when I've argued with a Coptic Orthodox before, I'm like, well, you're a monophysite, you know, and he knew exactly what I was saying. And so we're going back and forth. I'm like, you monophysite. And then when we're explaining where we differ with each other, it seemed very much like Cyril talking with John of Antioch. Like, I think we mean the same thing. You just hate the words I use. I'm like, the words I use are infinitely superior to the words you're using. But at the same time, I'm understanding where you're coming from. So 
it would be wrong to say monophysites deny that Jesus had a human nature. They believe he did. They just want to use a different word. And so at the end of the day, it, it, it was like when it came to this, it was over, over semantics. Uh, but they, they're still separated from, from the, the larger church um, to this day. And yeah, now I have met people who are true monophysites. I remember once uh, we had a, a Bible study that used to be at my house. And sometimes we'd go back and forth to other people's houses. And one dude invited his friend and his friend said, I don't believe Jesus was a human at all. I believe he only appeared to be human and he only faked pain on the cross. I'm like, I'm like, well, may my eyes never cease to amaze me. I'm like, I thought your kind was extinct. He's like, my kind? I'm like, your kind, monophysites, you know. I'm like, they were taken out 1,500 years ago. Yet behold, a monophysite. I was being a total jerk, but I was like, I was like 23. Doesn't justify it, but I was, yeah. If you knew me at 23, that was totally me. Completely humiliated the guy. He didn't know what a monophysite was. But, um, but what I would say is, apart from that guy, you don't find true monophysites. They don't really believe he only has one nature. That's just the, the language they like to use. Now, I'm going to close because I know I'm going longer than I thought I would. There's more stuff I wanted to cover. But I, since we're talking about Christological issues, I want to jump forward a couple centuries and just hammer out one more. This one is not as complicated. Okay, the decision of, the, of Chalcedon is one of the most biblically accurate assessments of the nature of Christ. But the controversy didn't die down. Okay, the church also wanted an official declaration against the monophysites. And so they get that a hundred years later at the Second Council of Constantinople in 553. That's where it condemns them as heretics. Even though they're probably not heretics, it condemns us as, as heretics. Well, here's the problem. Some offshoots of monophysitism, monophysitism then emerged. And there were some who said, okay, tell you what, church, you called us heretics. We'll meet you in the middle. He has two natures. But we demand that the two natures be united by one will. So he has, he has two natures, but Christ only has one will, only a divine will. He does not have a human will. These are called monothelites. Okay, thelite just means will. Uh, well, a person who believes in, in one will. Um, because thelo is, is I will in Greek, so monothelites, that Jesus has only uh, one will. Now, the main guy who's going to defeat these guys, his name was Maximus the Confessor. He actually had his tongue chopped out oh, yeah. over this by his enemies, um, but he was a good writer. <laughs> and so he, he ends up winning the day with this. And in, in Rome, you have Pope Stephen, and by this time they were popes. Um, he also takes up this cause against the monothelites. And Maximus's argument is like, look, it's diothelite. Because since Christ has two natures, which you guys are now agreeing, he has to have two wills. Because you can't have a human nature without a human will. So he has to have a divine will. But he has to have a human will. And going back to what Gregory said, he cannot save what he has not assumed. And so if there's any part of humanity he hasn't assumed, he hasn't saved it. And so, yes, he has to have a will, a human will. And consider Matthew 26, 39, where, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but your will. Now, Jesus, the human will never goes against the divine will, but he still had a human will. And in that human nature, knew what was going to happen on that cross, 
knew that it was worse than any of us could imagine because it's not only the worst man could do to him, it's the worst that the Father was going to do to him because of our sin. And so Jesus was like, if it's possible, but not my will. His human will always agreed with his divine will. Because between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's not three wills. There's one will between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the person of Jesus, since he has two natures, has two wills. Divine, which is shared with the Father and the Spirit, but then the human. They're in agreement with each other, but to deny that human will is to deny the full humanity of Christ. And so, again, Maximus makes the right argument. He wins, and the monothelites are condemned at the Third Council of Constantinople in 681. And so that's what, for the most part, ends... Um, you know, ends the, the debates over all this. Now, I was going to talk about the concept of communicatio idiomatum, which means communication of attributes, and so you could see these, these slides that I have, but we're, we're out of time. Um, and so maybe you could ask me another time. Uh, I'm just putting these up so you could then go on to the, the stream and you could pause it and read it, um, just going back and forth and then uh, and so forth. So let me, let me conclude. The orthodox and biblical position concerning Christology is that Jesus Christ is completely God, deity, but he has a human and divine nature. They are without separation, division, and confusion, right? Uh, he is one person with these two natures. He also has two wills. So this brings us all the way to the 7th century. These wills are not in conflict with each other. He's not a split personality. His human will agrees with the divine will at every moment. And despite all, these despite all the philosophical language it took to get here, all of this does agree with the testimony of Scripture. Um, I do think the Greek way of thinking is what created all these problems. And if people would have just stuck with uh, the Jewish way of thinking, some of it would have been avoided. Um, but at the same time, we did end up with a very precise way of describing Christ with language that is precise and darn near perfect, I think, to where people can't accuse us of logical inconsistency or contradiction. They could accuse us of paradox, which we admit that it is. But there's no internal contradictory language here. Um, it's precise in every bit of it. Then you could find scripture afterwards like, oh, we see this here, here, here. It is all scriptural. It, it describes what the Bible tells us. Um, so I think all these fights happen for a reason so that we could end up like, like we could draw the borders of what a Christian believes about God and Jesus very distinctly, which makes it easy for us to look at Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and say, you are not it. You're not it. What you believe is, is, is heretical. Um, so these boundaries are important. They, they, they really